You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at redrocksbaptist. Our world needs the gospel. I don't think that's news to you, but there are about 8 billion people in the world and uh, statistics show that about 25% of the world live in, in unreached people groups. An unreached people group is, a, is an ethnicity of people who do not have the scriptures in their language, that have no churches. In fact, many of these groups have no known followers of Jesus. 25% of the world. That's 2 billion people who are going to be born and live and die without hearing the name of Jesus or understanding what he's done for them. Our world needs the gospel. Our city, Denver, needs the gospel, a little closer to home. There are, by estimates, if you do the metro Denver area, about three million people, maybe a couple thousand less, a couple thousand more, but three million people. And uh, every so often, researchers do statistics about the uh, religious demographics of communities. And according to the most recent statistics, about 15 to 20% of those in Metro Denver would claim to be evangelical Christians like us, believing the gospel is the good news about Jesus' death and resurrection, and he is the only way of salvation. And that sounds pretty good until you realize that 33% of our city claims no religious affiliation at all. That's one million people who live within driving distance of us that we interact with every single week who say that there is no God and I don't want anything to do with them if there is. If you expand it out to just those who do not claim Christ as their Savior, that's 2.4 million people in our city who don't know Christ. 2.4 million. Our city needs the gospel. Let's take it one step closer to home. Our Jerusalem needs the gospel, and I've shown this map several times, and there's a point to that. I want us to understand who our primary mission field is. And in this area, this square, roughly, this shape on the screen, there are about 15,000 people represented. We have probably 250 to 300 people here at church today. There's 15,000 people who live so close to us they could walk or ride their bike to church. There are two other churches in this area, uh, one just uh, to the north of it, another just tucked on the the northeast corner of it, uh, a Lutheran and Episcopalian church. And, And from their websites, neither of them are very clear about the gospel. If these people in this area are gonna come to faith in Christ, whose responsibility is it? It's ours. It's our responsibility. Our Jerusalem needs the gospel. And yet there's something that's so sobering is is as we think about the world and the billions of people and we think about our community and the need for so many to hear Jesus, that the sobering reality, that the, the sad thing that we have to admit is that most Christians will never lead another person to Jesus. I've read statistics that say 95% of Christians will never lead another person to Jesus. How in the world are we going to reach our community 
if we can't lead other people to Christ. And, and I'm afraid to say that, that so many Christians, and, and it's easy for me to do this too, so many Christians just live their life in their little bubble and they don't even act like passing on their faith is, is a part of their belief system. And how sad that is. Because we gather in here in a very comfortable, comfortable environment. We believe the truth of the, of the gospel. We believe that Jesus died to save sinners and rose again as we learned this morning. But we also believe the alternative. Which is that those who don't name the name of Christ spend eternity in hell apart from him under his wrath. If we believe that, then why don't we share Christ more? Is it, a, is it a fear? A fear of rejection? A fear of the consequences? Is it feeling awkward about speaking up? Is it just, it's easier to keep our heads down because there might be opposition? Is it being too cr- comfortable in our Christian bubble? But the fact of the matter is, Compared to hell for eternity, these objections that we have, these things that we all feel in our hearts, they're insignificant. So a momentary mocking or a little bit of awkwardness for an eternal, an eternal witness. Why don't we advance the gospel? Well, there's a whole sermon we could, we could spend on why we don't share the gospel. But, but I, I'm not going to come at it with from that angle, Kate and I were talking this morning about what I was going to preach. And, and honestly, I don't know if we need 45 minutes of conviction about not witnessing because I think we're all convicted already. I know I am. And so I think a better approach is to say, how do we share the gospel? What, what does this text tell us that, that helps us to go and share Christ. Because one of the reasons we don't share the gospel is I think we fear the unknown. We're not quite sure what to say. We don't know what to do if someone reacts a certain way. And, and in some ways, we just gotta kind of take the plunge. But in other ways, if we understand our approach, our strategy, one of those barriers is lessened. And that's what this passage does for us today. Colossians 4, 2 through 6 removes that barrier of fear of the unknown and it shows us how, teaches us how to advance the gospel. Now before we get to the text this morning, I need to pause and make sure we understand what the gospel is because in a group of people this size, there may be some who are here that have come for many years or maybe just for a couple of minutes and you don't know what the gospel is. The Bible teaches us that God created the worlds at the very beginning of time and that he was a good God and is a good God and gave us wonderful things in the Garden of Eden and man sinned against God. They, it chose, Adam and Eve chose to, to believe a lie about God rather than receiving the truth and obeying him. And so they turned their backs on God, they sinned against him and hum, the human race was plunged into sin. But God didn't give up on us. Over time, predictions were made, and eventually, Galatians 4 says, at the right moment in time, Jesus was born, and he lived perfectly. The Bible says that he went to a cross similar to what is up here on our wall, and he died. And then for three days, he rested in the grave, and then was, was raised to newness of life. 
The Bible says that any who believe in the name of Jesus will be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you're here without Jesus today, this is the message of the gospel. In fact, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. You must repent of your sins. You must trust Christ as your Savior. For those of us who have gathered here as believers confessing this good news, as Pastor Jerry just pointed out, we just rehearsed it in our, in our singing. How do we take this and pass on our faith? That's, that's part of how we grow as a Christ-like disciple. It's we don't just gather and worship and, and live in community with each other and serve one another because that's easy to do or comfortable. And, and we don't just study the Bible because we can handle that. We have to pass on our faith. We have to. Because if the good news is this good, then it's news that must be shared. And this text today answers this question, how do we advance the gospel? And the first way that we advance the gospel is through prayer. Colossians 4, 2 through 4. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. So how do we advance the gospel? Number one, through prayer. And we spent last week on this idea of prayer is real spiritual ministry. When you're praying, you're not just talking to the Lord and, and, okay, I'm blessing the food in front of me or wishing for a good day. I am literally engaging in spiritual ministry that stretches across time and space. Since prayer is how we can participate in the spread of the gospel, we should be devoted to it. And that's what verse 2 teaches us. Be devoted to prayer. Be vigilant in it. Be alert in it. Be like a watchman on the wall that's, that's ready to pray. Persevere in it. Make it a priority. Be devoted to it. And we pray with thanksgiving. And Colossians has talked a lot about this idea of thanksgiving. In fact, verse, chapter 3, verses 15 through 17 showed us that thanksgiving is the flavor of the Christian life. Everything we do in the Christian life is a response of gratitude to God for saving us. Thanksgiving fills our prayers. And and this this gives a nice counterbalance because if I say prayer is real spiritual ministry and we've got to watch in it and be alert in it, it it may have the idea in your minds of of I've got to be like the military and be super disciplined and regimented. But, But prayer isn't just a duty that we do. Prayer is a response, a relationship where we talk to the Lord. And when we pray, what's taking place? When we pray, we are stepping into the spiritual world and engaging in spiritual warfare. And that's why, that's why prayer is hard, because, because prayer fights real spiritual battles. And yet, if, if we're going to use that, that military illustration, the ministry of prayer is like air cover for the ground troops, We won't be on the ground in every situation all over the world. I can't be where you are to share the gospel with your coworkers or family or friends. But the Lord is there. And when we pray for one another, we are praying in God's support that the gospel would advance. And the beautiful thing is that prayer accomplishes real spiritual results. We can be encouraged by this. That we're not just doing some fruitless task to make ourselves feel better about it, 
Prayer accomplishes real spiritual results. But there's a qualification to it. The Bible says that when we pray, we need to ask in faith, believing. Do we believe, do you believe that when you pray, you're actually talking to God, that there's actual spiritual results that are taking place? Do you believe that God answers and asks? Hebrews eleven six. he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. And I want to encourage you, some of you have prayed for a loved one, perhaps, a spouse, a son, a daughter, a parent, for years, decades maybe. Don't quit on them. Be vigilant in prayer. Keep at it. The Lord is at work. Stay faithful in your prayer. Well, what are we to pray for? Verse 3 tells us that we are to pray and ask God to provide gospel opportunities. Verse 3 starts with Paul asking prayer for his own ministry, praying also for us, he says. And the first prayer request he had was not so that they would have direction or wisdom or that all the details would be set into place. His first prayer is that God would work. God is sovereign. He creates the opportunities. Because for a person to receive the gospel, God has to be at work. Ephesians 2, Colossians talks about this as well in chapter 2. When someone is spiritually apart from Christ, they are spiritually dead. They are blinded. We can't raise people to life again. We can't go and open their spiritual eyes. Ephesians 1 says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. We can't do that, but God can. And so when Paul says, praying for us, that God would open a door for the word, he's picturing the gospel as this this message that's going from door to door, as it were. And some doors are going to be closed, but God is the one leading and directing, and God is the one opening doors that, that we then step through with the message of hope in Christ. For the gospel to advance, God has to open doors. And it's not just talking about God the Father here either, because when we are witnessing, we rely on the Spirit of God to show us what to say and who to talk to. The Spirit's role, John 16, is to convict the world regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. The Spirit of God is at work in our witnessing. He led the apostles in the book of Acts to people who were open doors, who were ripe for the gospel. And he still does this today. And so as we seek to witness, as we seek to evangelize, it's obedience as we do it, but it's, it's Spirit-led. We're following where the Spirit is going. And when the Spirit of God arranges an opportunity, we have a responsibility. We have a role to play. We have to speak up. And so what Paul says next is a prayer request that we can pray as well. He's praying for courage to share the gospel. And in verses 3 through 4, there are three phrases that highlight our role and our need to speak up. In verse 3, he says he wanted to speak the mystery of Christ. And that word mystery links back to the end of chapter 1, where the mystery of Christ is that now in this time, Jesus is revealed and he saves and he is the hope of glory. Our witnessing points people to Christ. He said in verse 4, pray for me that I may make it manifest 
Because Paul had a responsibility to share the word. He wanted to clearly explain it. And so he asked them, help, ask the Lord to help me make the, the word clear, to share the gospel in an understandable and a clear way. And at the end of verse 4, we see Paul's burden to speak the gospel. He's not just saying, hey, pray for me that, that I get around to doing this. He says, pray for me that I may speak it as I ought to speak. There was a burden here that Paul had. And if you're a follower of Christ today, this should be your same burden. That, that, that I would speak the word with boldness and clarity. And that I would have a burden to speak it as I ought. That if I don't share the gospel in a week, I'm heavy in heart. I'm weighed down. Do you have the same burden for the lost that Paul did? I think it's very easy for Christians, to, again, to go through their routine. You get very comfortable with their friends and their, their Christian circles and their bubble, and they never share Christ. There are people dying all around us, headed for eternal punishment, and yet we're, we're so focused on the TV show that we're going to watch tonight or the kids' activity this weekend, that, that we're missing the souls of people all around us. We need to pray for God to increase our burden for the lost and for sharing the gospel. Now what this, this point shows us is that when the, because the gospel advances through prayer, we ought to be praying for it. And, and let me ask you this. If we pray that God would open doors and give us boldness to speak the word, is that a prayer request he's going to answer? Nod your head up and down with me. Yes. <laughs> this is not a prayer request that's way out in left field or right field. This is a prayer that's according to the will of God. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And if we start praying, Lord, use me to see other people come to Christ, give me opportunities to speak, and then help me to, to recognize them, God is going to answer that prayer request. He's done it for me. He's done it for our family. And so I just, I just have to ask, could it be that we're not sharing the gospel because we're just frankly not asking for opportunities? James 4 says you, you have not because you ask not. Could that apply here? Could, could we not have gospel opportunities? Could we not be seeing people come to faith in Christ here in our church because we're simply not asking for it? Let's start praying, my brothers and sisters, that God would answer this request. That, that, that our hearts would be displayed to the world around us, that people would come to faith in Christ through our witness. When we have an opportunity, even if the person doesn't make a decision, let's praise the Lord for that opportunity. Share that with other people. Talk to one another. Say, hey, I had an opportunity to share Christ this week. I had an opportunity to, to, to give the gospel to a friend. We had that happen this week in our young adults group. I had an opportunity to share gospel with a, with a parent. What does that do for the rest of the group? We're all excited and we're back on our knees praying because of what God is doing. So talk about it. Share Christ and share the opportunities with others. Let's keep moving. Secondly, how do we advance the gospel? Well, there's a little phrase buried in verse 3 that the American church often misses. Paul says, for which I am also in chains. And we have to square with this reality that the gospel advances through persecution. And this is probably an unfamiliar concept 
to us here, and yet it's, it's very common in other parts of the world that basic discipleship, someone comes to faith in Christ and they're talking about how to grow in their Christian life, they talk almost immediately about persecution, about the cost of following Jesus, and about the hostility that they will face. We don't talk about that. But the Bible explains very clearly that, that the gospel and persecution go hand in hand. Persecution is the result of the gospel's advance. That's what Paul's talking about here. I've been sharing the gospel, and for this reason, I'm in chains. I'm in prison. Persecution is an inevitable result of the gospel. Last week, I mentioned two workers from Voice of the Martyrs in Southeast Asia, Ben and Kimberly were their names. And they had prayed that God would build a church in a very difficult village and God planted a church in that home that they prayed in. Pretty incredible story. But they said something else in that interview and, and one of the questions often is, so if you're working with people and persecution comes up, how are they gonna respond? And so the, the host asked Ben and Kimberly, well, what would your national partners do if, if they were persecuted for the gospel? And they said, oh, they've already told us. It's not a big deal. They said to us, Ben, Kimberly, if we're arrested, we'll go plant a church in prison. That, that's their mentality. Oh, you know, no problem. We're just going to keep planting churches, just happens to be in prison versus happens to be in this village. That's what Paul's attitude was. 2 Timothy 2.9, I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of change, but chains, but the word of God is not chained. The word of God is not bound. The gospel goes forward no matter who is persecuting it. And in America, there's not prison yet. There's not being physically assaulted for our faith yet. But what might persecution look like? Well, perhaps it's job loss. Perhaps it's legal uh, attacks like Jack Phillips has had. Perhaps it's, it's being severed from a family relationship or ostracized from a group of people or passed over for promotion or just criticized or hounded by a coworker. I mean, all these things are hostility to our Savior through your witness. And so we don't shy away from persecution if we are living godly in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 2. Those who live in godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We should expect it because it's going to come. If we faithfully advance the gospel, we will face opposition. But, but I can feel the fear rising in some of our hearts. But we don't have to be afraid of this. Even if they take us to jail, can they take away our eternal inheritance? Can they take Jesus out of our hearts? Can they take away the bond that we have with one another? Can they take away our hope? They can't. Now, if this isn't challenging enough, the Bible shows us a second way that persecution affects the gospel. Not only is persecution the result of the gospel's advance, many times persecution is the means of the gospel's advance. In other words, God chooses many times persecution to be the way that the gospel multiplies. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul claims that his imprisonment has, has furthered the gospel. He says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. 
That's the title of our sermon today, Advancing Gospel Advance. So that the gospel has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest of my imprisonment is for Christ. His persecution was the means by which the gospel spread. We've actually seen this concept before in Colossians 1.24. Paul writes, again, still from prison, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. And I've read a a decent amount about this since we touched on it several months ago. And again, what Paul is saying here is not that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was incomplete and that he had to somehow bring it to fulfillment and, and finish the work of Christ. No, the work of Christ is finished on the cross. But what Paul means is that sufferings bring a visible representation of Jesus to the people that we're trying to reach. John Piper explains it this way. God designs that the suffering of his ambassadors is one essential means in the triumphant spread of the good news among all the peoples of the world. I am saying more than the obvious fact that suffering is a result of the faithful obedience in spreading the gospel. That is true. But I am saying that our suffering is part of God's strategy for making known to the world who Christ is, how he loves, and how much he's worth. Do you know where the fastest growing Christian populations are in the world? If you measure the growth of Christianity by percentage, where is Christianity growing? In restricted and hostile nations. Seven out of the top seven nations in the world that Christianity is growing the fastest are opposed to Christianity. Sometimes it's illegal to be a Christian. That includes nations like Iran, China, Bahrain, other Middle Eastern countries, other North African countries. In fact, 8 out of 10 and 12 out of 15 of the top countries that Christianity is growing in heavily persecute believers. And yet, the gospel still spreads. Why? Because persecution is one of God's means to advance the gospel. So, so why do we try to avoid God's design for the church here? Why do we try to, to, to avoid persecution at all costs? I think fear certainly comes into play. I mean, no one wants to be persecuted. We don't go looking for it. It's uncomfortable. It's hard. But in America, the seeker-sensitive movement has changed our theology It's taught us that the gospel spreads when people feel comfortable, that that churches appeal, can make the gospel more appealing by the way they market it, that that people will accept the gospel if they just understand it intellectually or or it ministers to them on a therapeutic level. So what what do churches do? They they market the gospel like a product or they parade it like a self-help tool. Persecution in this mindset, in this worldview is unthinkable because the gospel is all about making me comfortable and fulfilled and happy. And, and, and folks, the gospel is about following Jesus. And he's a suffering savior. Instead, the New Testament teaches and most of the world understands that the gospel spreads when we represent Christ and suffer for his name. Perhaps you've heard 
the famous phrase from one of the early church fathers, Tertullian. The blood of the martyrs is seed, or the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. He's talking about this point. That when, when a secular government or a pagan nation or, or hostile people kill a Christian and shed their blood, it's like that blood plants the gospel and the gospel bears great fruit through that persecution. And it's been that way since the beginning of the church. And if you go to places like China, you know what they say they're praying for Americans? They're praying that persecution would come into the American church so that the church would multiply and spread and grow. We, we need a mindset change about how we think about persecution in the gospel because, because we don't advance the gospel through slick marketing campaigns and digital methods. Now, can we use like digital technology on a website? Sure, but that's not where we place our hope. The gospel spreads when God's people embody their Savior and then are willing to suffer for his namesake. And if we want to reach our Jerusalem with the gospel, we just have to expect that opposition will arise. We will have to expect that there's going to be some fights and some pushback. If you're trying to witness to unsaved friends or family, or you have a testimony for Christ in your workplace, and you're experiencing pushback and you're ostracized or you're mocked, that hostility is expected. But don't view that as a discouraging thing because in that hostility is an opportunity for the gospel to be magnified and advanced. And that's very different than how we normally think. Be encouraged that even our suffering helps to advance the gospel. So the gospel advances through prayer and through persecution. Verses 5 and 6 challenge us to have a faithful Christian testimony. And a testimony includes how we live and what we say. And so verse 5 talks about how we live. Verse 6 talks about what we say. Walk in wisdom, Paul writes, toward those who are outside redeeming the time. The gospel advances through wise conduct. And the main command here is to walk in wisdom. That refers to our lifestyle, the, the word walk was a metaphor for the way that we live our lives, how we conduct ourselves. And we are to behave wisely, Paul writes, toward those who are outside. So this is in front of those who do not believe the gospel. Now that doesn't mean you can be uh, uh, foolish among believers, <laughs> but it does emphasize that we are to live out our faith in a wise manner among those who do not claim Christ as their Savior. Therefore, to live wisely we need to first live worthy of Jesus. And if you, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 10, or chapter 2, verse 6, there's several other commands to walk in a certain way. And for time's sake, we, we can't get into those. But what these verses are showing us is that if we are going to walk with the Lord, we are to walk worthy of him. And that points us to a very critical principle. Our testimony and how we reach other people is grounded upon the way we live. It's based in our lifestyle. If we claim to represent Jesus and claim to believe in him, we have to reflect that by the way we live. Walking worthy simply means living in alignment with our treasure, living in such a way that Jesus is clearly the treasure preeminent in our lives. And so we have to square with this truth your lifestyle 
reflects the gospel. The way you live will either add or detract from your testimony, from your witness. And so the next implication here is we need to align the way that we walk and talk. Align your walk and your talk. When I was in high school, I think I told you a couple weeks ago, I worked at a, a place that was called Beaver Valley Farm. And one of the coworkers there that I had claimed to be a Christian. And I thought to myself, this is great. I've got another guy here who's going to love Jesus. And the next day he came in late. And later that day he was arguing with the boss. And then the next week he started running his mouth and it was full of, of curse and vulgarity. And then he picked fights with other people and he was selfish with his time and I think he was cheating the time too. His talk did not match his walk. And it actually made it more difficult for me as another Christian because they were saying, hey, so he says this and you say this, so are you guys the same thing? And as an 18-year-old, I'm trying to explain, well, (laughs) no, we're not, uh, kind of. He says he is, but doesn't seem like he is. Well, what's the point? His walk and his talk didn't match. And that affects the way we the way we handle our money, that affects the way we work, that affects the way we interact with people in the public square. I, over and over and over again, we talk about all the applications of that. Align your walk and talk. And then Paul writes, make the most of every opportunity. The last part of verse four says to redeem the time. And, and the idea of redeeming, sometimes it's been explained as buy back the time. And, and I think I understand why people say that because redeem means to buy back. But it that kind of explanation doesn't quite fit here. Can you buy back the time that that is already in the past? No, you can't get back what's happened. Other translations say something to the effect of make the most of your time, make the best use of your time, or take advantage of every opportunity. And that's the idea. And to make the most of every opportunity requires wisdom. We need discernment to know when to speak up, when to not. We need discernment to know which choice to make and which choice to not make. And I want to encourage you as we head into the holiday season, there's going to be several opportunities that you're probably going to have to share the gospel. I know I'm going to have several opportunities. So let's obey this verse together. Let's make the most of every opportunity we can. Let's be wise in how we conduct ourselves. But let's not miss an opportunity to talk about Jesus. And it doesn't have to be you walk into the family gathering at Thanksgiving and, you know, over lunch, hey, we're not going to talk about politics today. Instead, we're going to talk about religion. Well, that'll have about the same effect. But there's a, there's a gracious way to talk, which we'll see in a minute. Could we, could we turn attention to Jesus by simply talking about what he's done for us and how he's changed us and how he's answered our prayers this year? We can talk about the gospel in many different ways, which leads us right into to verse 6. Our speech is the final way the gospel advances. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. So how does the gospel advance? Through gracious speech. At some point, lifestyle evangelism breaks down. You need to walk worthy of Christ, but if you never speak about Jesus, how are people going to know that he died and rose for their sins? They will know something is different about you. They will know that you don't live the same way as everyone else, and that's very good, but it's not complete. So when you have that integrity, when you have that credibility, use it to advance the gospel. 
Sometimes people talk about building relational bridges. Maybe this was just something that was a decade ago in, the, in kind of conversation. But the whole point of a bridge, if you're an engineer, you go to a river and you build a bridge. The whole point of that bridge is to get things from point A to point B. A few weeks ago, there was a train derailment uh, down in Pueblo over I-25. That bridge was faulty. <laughs> it did not get the cargo from point A to point B. If we develop relationships with unsafe people, that's an excellent move. But if we never share the gospel with them, we have totally missed why we've built a bridge. Yeah, our bridge may be really strong and look really good, but if we never take the precious message of the gospel across that bridge and into their lives, then what's the point? We have to speak up. And Paul says that our speech has to be gracious, which means we communicate God's grace in Christ. When we talk with unbelievers, we, we, we point the conversation to Jesus. Salvation is all of his grace. And if we're going to talk about salvation, if we're going to talk about what Jesus has done, what comes out of our lips and our mouths has to be in our hearts first. So if you want to improve the frequency of your witness, if you want to be a stronger, more consistent person who shares Christ, meditate on the gospel more. Because if the good news is this good, then you will share it with other people. I read this recently in a book. How can we identify those who are followers of Jesus? It's easy. They are those possessed with thoughts of him so that the gospel is always on their mind and lips. They are those who find their greatest delight to be in Jesus Christ. That's us. So we talk of Christ's grace. But then we also talk in a winsome manner. This is the other way we can apply the idea of gracious speech. We talk in a winsome manner. And, and this is especially important in witnessing because the gospel message is offensive. 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 shows us it's a stumbling block to people. The message of Christ is offensive enough without us adding to it with our manners or method. We don't want to be rude or, or unaware of what's going on. We want to be sensitive and clear. And the metaphor in verse 6, seasoned with salt, I think points to this, pictures this. Salt adds flavor, right? One of the greatest things you can do is just add salt. Because everything tastes better with salt. Even McDonald's french fries, just add more salt. They taste even better. Christians ought to have speech that's good tasting. That's winsome. That's attractive. Proverbs 16, 24. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul, and health to the body. Gracious words. So we talk in a winsome manner, and then we give gospel answers to human needs. The last phrase of verse 6 communicates the purpose of speaking graciously. Why do we try to speak graciously? So that we may know how to answer every person. In the natural course of life, we will have opportunities to share the gospel. I've shared the gospel, yes, on planes, and yes, here in my office at church, but I've also shared it on the side of a mountain on my bicycle. I've shared it while doing preschool tours. I've shared it in coffee shops. I've shared it on sidelines at athletic events. You probably have, have a similar story where you have been able to share the gospel in different scenarios. 
1 Peter 3, we always have to be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks the reason for the hope that's in us. But there's also a, a secondary point. Not only should we be ready, but the gospel can be tailored to each person's need. Jesus' salvation affects us in, in different ways. It meets us at different points. And the message of the gospel doesn't change. But how we present it can be tailored to that person's struggles. You're not going to approach someone who's grieving the loss of a spouse and someone who's coming to you saying, I'm really anxious all the time. You're not going to talk to them the same way. You're going to give them the truth, which points back to Jesus. But the gateway to get to Christ might be a little different. The pathway to him through the scriptures might be different. Let me illustrate that. I've, I've got a book in my office by a man named Walter Wilson who was a medical doctor, and I think Jeff Musgrave talks about him with the exchange. He was a medical doctor in the early 1900s, and he worked for his father-in-law's manufacturing plant, and he went and traveled all over the United States. And he loved to witness because he loved people. And over and over, he would meet different people at, at different times, and instead of just giving them the Romans road every single time, he would use different things about the person or their background or their work or their situation to lead to Jesus. So he talked to a, a furniture salesman about the fact that there was no chair in the tabernacle because the work was never done and that pointed to Jesus. He talked to a, a farm wife about, about the need of the gospel through the, through the parable of the tares and sowing and planting, something that was readily available to her. He tailored his message of the gospel to the needs of the people he talked to. And that may sound super difficult for you, but you don't have to have like an encyclopedia where you say, okay, what's, kind of, what's your background? All right, let me, let me pull out my book. You know, uh, farming, 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 farming. Got it. Okay, here's the message. You, you talk to people, but as you meditate on the truths of the gospel, the Lord will lead you in these ways to give a gospel answer to the need that is presented. So how do we advance the gospel? It's through prayer. Often it's through persecution. Through wise and consistent conduct and the way we live and through gracious witness. And that really leads to a simple and yet very encouraging conclusion. The gospel advances when ordinary believers share their treasure. Now don't be offended when I say ordinary. My point here is that you don't have to be a pastor or a missionary to talk about the gospel. Every believer can and should participate in the gospel's advance. I, I mean, who is this passage written to? Was Paul writing to his trained group of pastors having a, a pastor's conference in Colossae? <laughs> he was writing to the church. He was writing to people like you and me. One commentator made this observation. I thought it was excellent. Most conversions are not produced by professional missionaries conveying a new message, but by rank and file members who share their faith with their friends and relatives. He continues, conversions produced by these friends and relatives are often produced by a lifestyle that demonstrates the vitality and power of one's faith. Just because you're not called to preach doesn't mean you can't be one of God's messengers for the gospel. God has entrusted the gospel to every believer. 
elementary students, teens, empty nesters, shut-ins, businessmen, businesswomen, stay-at-home moms, financial planners, medical professionals, you name it, God's entrusted you with the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We, we are earthen vessels, clay pots is the idea. We're just ordinary people, but yet in these ordinary people, God has poured out a transforming, glorious message of Jesus. It's a treasure. And, and if you claim the name of Jesus, you possess this treasure, so share it. In the situation God has placed you in, with the people God has brought into your life, because God is sovereign, he's opened doors, he's put you in places where perhaps no other Christian will be. God is sovereignly working to put you in contact with people who need the gospel. So who has he put you in front of? Who do you rub shoulders with that needs Christ? And there, we have to admit that people don't receive the gospel the first time they hear it. Very few do that. It takes time. And that's why the Bible compares to sharing the gospel to planting seeds in a field. It takes time and watering before the harvest is ripened. So if you've been witnessing, stay with it. Be encouraged. The word of God does not return void. Keep planting. Keep sharing. And what do we share? We share our treasure. And in and we don't want to think about lost and buried treasure, like if we found something out in the field, we want to take it and hide it and put it in our bank account. We can keep our treasure. That's the wrong idea. This type of treasure multiplies when we share it. If you've ever been to a place to eat that you really liked, or you have a, a show that, or a book that you've read that, that you really enjoy, or a place that you've traveled to that you're like, people, other people have to enjoy this. When they experience the thing that delights you, now your treasure is not hoarded, it's shared and it's multiplied because now you have that in common. That's the type of treasure Christ is. He's not a treasure to be put under a bushel with a candlestick. He's a light to be displayed to the world. And when we share the gospel, when we share our treasure and other people come to see Christ as preeminent and they rejoice that Jesus is their treasure, our joy is multiplied. So who do you need to share the gospel to? Don't hunker down. Don't keep quiet. Spread the gospel. Share it far and wide. And, and my burden that I've explained several times is for our church to become a hub for gospel advance. And that starts with, with us right here in our community, in your relationships, in the day-to-day -day matters of life that you go through, it starts with us. The gospel advances when ordinary believers like you and me share our treasure with every person God brings into our lives. Let's ask the Lord for help to do that. Would you bow with me? And as we are preparing to pray, I'll give you a moment to, to respond to the Lord. Perhaps identify a couple of people that you need to witness to. Commit that to the Lord. Respond to his word. And if you're not a believer in Christ, if you don't know Jesus as your savior, the gospel is for you. It can advance right now in your heart today. If you'd like to 
to see from the scriptures how you can be saved, please come talk to me. I'll be in the back after the service. Talk to Pastor Jerry. He'll be up front. There are many other members that we could direct you to that would love to open a Bible and sit down with you. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help. As Paul wrote, you have to open doors for the gospel. But, but when we look at your role and our role, we, we can't blame you because you're very faithful in your role. In fact, you're, you're 100% faithful and we are very unfaithful. So we ask for your forgiveness, for your cleansing, for your strength. And we pray that you would advance the gospel right here. We would love to see people baptized, dozens of them in the next year. Because people are coming to faith in Christ. They're seeing that their sins are forgiven. They have a hope of eternal life. We just, we just ask, Lord, that you'd start the work in us. Start the work in our hearts. And may it spread to our community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make him known. May God bless you as you follow him.